Welcome to the St. Matt's 6pm podcast, where you can listen to sermons from our evening service. Today, Chris will speak on racing our hearts, continuing in our Ethnos series. The text for today, Matthew chapter 15, verse 21 to 28. Jesus has just clashed with the authorities again, the religious leaders. And these leaders, they focus on the external. They're so concerned with what they look like on the outside, with what other people look like on the outside. But Jesus cares about the heart. And Jesus knows that their hearts are ugly. The leaders are concerned about what his disciples are eating, whether or not they're following the traditions of the elders about how they wash their hands before a meal. So Jesus warns his disciples to watch out for them. To watch out for that kind of attitude that focuses on the outside. Only his disciples don't get the warning. He tells them, don't you see? The things that come out of a person's mouth, that's what comes from the heart. And that's what makes someone defiled. Out of the heart, that's where evil comes from. But it's not enough to just tell them once. He recognises his disciples aren't the fastest runners. And he needs some more time teaching just them. So they leave Jewish territory entirely. They go to the region of Tyre and Sidon, to the north. Far from the crowds, far from the toxic influence of the Pharisees. A place where they can be anonymous, at least in theory. It's a chance for Jesus to just focus on his disciples. But right away it seems they're recognized. They're interrupted. Verse 22. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon possessed and suffering terribly. Notice what Matthew calls her, a Canaanite woman. In the Gospel of Mark, in the same story, she's called a Greek from Syrian Phoenicia. Mark uses the geopolitical terms of the day, but Matthew uses a throwback term. He uses that term from the Old Testament, Canaanite, making us think of the Canaanites being the wicked nations God drove out of the land where the disciples now live. So she's one of those people. And when Jesus is supposed to be having some intimate time with his disciples, his chosen disciples, when his focus is supposed to be on them, this Canaanite woman is interrupting. No, no, not just, not just interrupting. She's harassing them. She won't leave them alone. Jesus ignores her. He keeps walking, but she keeps following. I mean, the audacity. The disciples urge Jesus, send her away. She keeps crying out after us. Tell her to get lost, Jesus. And then Jesus speaks for the first time. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. 
Who is he talking to here? It's not stated, it's not entirely clear. Is he saying that for her or for his disciples? Has she even caught up with them yet? I wonder if the statement is at least as much for the disciples. After all, he articulates what they're probably thinking. He's our Messiah. He's our son of David. He's for us, not for her. He's not for them. But she catches up. She doesn't mind if they sneer at her. Her daughter is suffering terribly. And she's not going to give up. She kneels before Jesus and says, Lord, help me. Jesus speaks again. It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. And again, he articulates what we might expect his disciples to be thinking. They are the children of Abraham. They are the inheritors of the promises of God. Jesus is for us. His power is for us. His blessing is for us. Not for her, not for them. It is not right. That's what Jesus had said. But she responds, yes, it is, Lord. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She just accepts the metaphor. Sure. The Jewish people can be the children. I'll be the dog. But I know your power, Jesus. I know who you are, and healing my daughter is just a crumb of what you can do. Then Jesus responds, Woman, great is your faith. Your request is granted. And who's he talking to here? He's addressing her. But the disciples need to hear this too. Jesus withdrew from the territory of Israel to teach his disciples. I very much doubt he's surprised that a person of a different ethnicity shows up when he chooses to go to her region. And this Canaanite woman isn't just an interruption. Right now she's the means by which he's teaching. They think, the disciples think he's just for the lost sheep of Israel, the Jewish people. But Jesus is saying to them that the lost sheep of Israel are just the beginning. They see a Canaanite woman and dismiss her because of her race. Maybe her gender too. But Jesus doesn't focus on the outside. During this exchange, her heart speaks love for her daughter and trust in him. Her faith shines out. The one thing Jesus wants to see. And look at what came out of the hearts of the disciples. A mother in desperate need. And all they could think to say was, Jesus, get rid of her. Jesus is challenging their hearts to understand his heart. He's for them, but he's for her too. He loves them, but he loves her too. I wonder if they had trouble sleeping that night. It's not easy to have the grossness of our hearts exposed, is it? We're now up to our third week in our series on race at St. Matt's. We've seen how God's vision, God's plan is to bring people of all tribes and nations and languages to himself through Jesus. A kingdom full of differences but united by Jesus. 
Racism says people are valuable based on what group they belong to. God says all people are valuable because they're made in his image. Racism focuses on the external and looks to divide, but Jesus focuses on the heart and looks to unify people through faith in him. So let's get this out of the way. Can I get all the racist people here to just raise their hands? All right, some of you are thinking it's very good, but uh, I don't think any of us actually want to be identified in the public sphere as racist, right? No one wants to be called racist. We'd much rather think that's what other people do. But why wouldn't this sin of racism be something that hides in our hearts sometimes? You know, I really can't stand gossip. Uh, It's a sin that particularly annoys me. I take a particularly hard line against gossip. It's particularly easy for me to take this position because I'm not someone who commits gossip. Except, in the last few weeks, I've caught myself gossiping more than once. The sin of gossip hides in my heart too. Jeremiah 17.9 says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Are we so sure that racism is just a problem out there? Maybe it's in here too. I think when we talk about something like racism, there's this natural desire, I especially see it amongst younger generations, to want to be activists, to want to get out there and be the ones who change the world, who fix it. But the way of Jesus is not to first deal with what's out there. It's to first deal with what's in here. We start with ourselves. We start with our own hearts. So this morning I want to help us explore the possibility that we also have racism to repent of. Not to dismay us, not to discourage us, not to leave us in guilt. But because we know that when we're honest with Jesus about our brokenness, that he's willing to help heal us. He can help us deal with our hearts so that we can be vessels fit for the master's use. So that we wouldn't just be self-righteously and tokenly virtue signaling our anti-racist positions in the world, but so that we can be people who are actually catalysts for change in our broken world. So I've tried to compile a short non-comprehensive list of ways I can think of that we might fall into racism. Number one, racism might come from fear or ignorance. When I was 12 years old, I was selected for the Wagga Wagga cricket team. Thank you. Uh, And we toured Sydney, playing the best 12-year-old teams from Sydney in different regions. We'd be billeted out. So I'd sleep at the house of an opposing player for one or two nights, then we'd move to a different region of Sydney, and the process would be completed over the course of a week, week and a half. And about halfway through our tour, I think, now that I live in Sydney, we must have been in the inner west. It was all the same to me back then. And we lined up on an oval at a training ground, uh, and we met the opposing team's families, and we were about to be billeted out before we played them the next day. And there was one family that stood out in the line of families. They were of African descent. Uh, I went to a school in Wagga that was one-third indigenous, 
but I don't think I'd ever at that point met someone from Africa before. And I was scared. And as they were working down the line and it was their family's turn to receive the kid who was going to be billeted with them, I remember praying, God, not me. Don't let it be me. But I was called out. And as I slowly bent down to pick up my luggage, my cricket bag, another boy leaned over to me from my team and he said, you're with the Black Adams family. Whatever that means. That still burns in my brain 22 years later. I stayed with that family for two nights. And you know what was weird about them? The mother was a veggio. And because they lived in a terrace house in like Newtown, they didn't have a driveway so we couldn't play cricket. I had the best time with that family. I got along so well with their boys. It was a highlight of my trip. And I hope to this day that they didn't notice my initial trepidation and understand where that was coming from. I hope they didn't notice the smirk of the boy next to me as he whispered something to me after their names and my name were called out. But maybe they did. Maybe they were used to it by then. But I hope not. Racism might come from fear or ignorance. Number two, Racism might come from carelessness, an inability to empathize, or a sense of whatever I am is what should be regarded as normal. When I was 23, Emily and I had just moved to South Korea. Uh, We were out in the city on a Friday night with some other fellow foreigners who had just moved to South Korea. We were waiting for some of their friends. And I didn't know who the people were that we were waiting for. So I wasn't sure who to look for, so I asked if they were Koreans or not. Only that's not what I said. What I said was, are they whiteies? And I, to this day, have no idea why I said that, because I don't think I've ever used that expression before, or certainly not since. And one of the other foreign women who was with us said to me, what did you say? And I think, if I remember correctly, I just repeated it. We moved on. And then over the course of the night, I realized she was from South Africa and she was of mixed race. What I just committed is what people are now calling a microaggression. Something mild enough that it's really hard to call out and turn into a confrontation. But still something that makes somebody from a minority group feel marginalized or uncomfortable. I'd wanted to know if we were waiting for Koreans or white people, leaving no space for someone like her who wasn't white or Korean. I'd casually made white normal, making her abnormal. We might commit this kind of racism when we get frustrated with someone's different accent, expecting that everyone should say things the way I do. When we're annoyed that someone passes us on the footpath to our right instead of to our left. Because that's not how we do it here. And if you were from here, you'd know that. When their food smells strange. When they talk on the phone nearby in a different language and it irritates us. When we care more. When natural disasters happen in places where the people look like us. 
than we care if the natural disaster happens in a place where the people don't look like us. I've heard it at St. Matt's when people would ask about the former Asian congregation, why don't they join us? Whoever us is. Instead of asking like, I wish I had asked more through those years, why don't we join them? Number three, racism can come from an insecure kind of hatred. The need to marginalise, criticise, control or remove people of another ethnic group to make yourself secure. I think this is the kind of racism we see on the news. One group bolsters their sense of group identity, making themselves secure, safe, right, normal, by attacking those who are different. I can start small so we stereotype other ethnic groups. And even if we pretend that we're stereotyping positively, it's still with a critical slant to it. We joke about their appearance. We joke about their driving. We have anti-Semitism. Blaming economic problems on Jewish people because we have to find somebody to blame. Or we have Asian hate. Or we have segregation. Apartheid. Pogroms. Ethnic cleansing. Genocide. The Holocaust. The Christian writer Richard Lovelace describes that kind of racism like this. These people come naturally to hate other cultural styles and other races in order to bolster their own security and discharge their suppressed anger. They fix upon their own race, their membership in a party, and their culture as a means of self-recommendation. The culture is put on as though it were armour against self-doubt, but it becomes a mental straitjacket, which cleaves to the flesh and can never be removed except through the comprehensive faith in the saving work of Christ. It's easiest to focus on that kind of racism. But I wonder if our most common kind of racism is, number four, racism that is expressed from our apathy. I want to contend that racism can also be expressed by our indifference to the status quo when the status quo isn't negatively affecting me or us but is negatively affecting others who are different. When I was in primary school uh, my friend and I were the two student representative council members for our year four class. My mum used to say that we looked like brothers. Uh, He had darker skin than me, he was indigenous but We had the same haircuts, we had the same freckles across the nose, we are about the same height, we had the same upturned noses actually. Uh, We were in the same class, we played in the same cricket team, we did a lot together. About six, seven years later, uh, we'd fallen out of touch. I was about to move to go to a grammar school to finish high school and he was no longer going to school at all. Uh, Someone told me that he was now using heroin. And it might be fair to point out that individual choices come into play in these kind of situations, but I think it would also be fair to point out that I always had a lot more choices. So we can debate corporate responsibility for the sins of past generations. 
and it's complicated and people get worked up. And if you want to tell me the shortcomings of critical race theory after this, I'm more than happy to have that conversation. There's a lot wrong with critical race theory. But whether or not we can draw a direct line between my privilege and my friend's lack of privilege, if we don't care about the very real disparities in life expectancy, health, education, wealth, incarceration rates that can be demarcated along ethnic lines, if we don't even care, I think that's an expression of racist sin too. I'll be honest, as I was working on this sermon, I kept thinking, no, don't phrase it like that, because that indicts me too. That leaves me guilty of sin too. But sometimes we have to have a hard look at our own hearts. To address racism in our world, policies are important. Strategies are needed. Collective responses are essential. But first, we have to look at our own hearts. First, we have to look at our... No. Almost first, we have to look at our own hearts. First, we have to look at Jesus' heart. In Matthew 15, we saw Jesus seek to bless his racist disciples and seek to bless the Canaanite woman too. He loved them, he loved her, and he loves us too. That's the heart of Jesus. A heart that is never captive to fear, never floored by ignorance, never controlled by self-righteousness or bloated by self-entitlement, never bound by insecurity or enslaved to hate, never stagnant in apathy. His heart always protects, always blesses, always sacrifices, always loves. He loved them, he loved her, and he loves us too. And knowing we're loved, we can come to him without fear of condemnation and confess how badly we need him to forgive us, change us, lead us. If you want the transformation Jesus offers, if you want to be a catalyst for good in this world, then please join with me in praying this prayer of confession now. It's a slightly modified prayer of confession from the fourth order in our prayer books. So we pray. Gracious Lord, we are not worthy to eat the crumbs under your table, but your love compels us to draw near. We come with repentance and faith to express our need for all the benefits of your son's death for us. Forgive us our ignorance and fear. Forgive our desire to build ourselves up at the expense of others. Forgive us when we choose apathy over empathy. Give us hearts like Jesus. Renew us in your service and help us to love one another as members of the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. St. Matt's West Penn Hills 6pm congregation is a collection of people who want to be changed by Jesus to have a deeper connection with God, deeper community with one another and deeper concern for our world. We'd love you to join us on a Sunday soon. For all the details, check out our website at stmats.org.au and be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss a sermon. Thank you.